This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 16. Formidable. Seasons were reversed in the county. Winter, the period of greatest activity in town, was the farmer's time of relaxation. Judith had been well aware of this fact when she insisted upon a fall wedding. She had plans for the winter. It would have shocked the entire family had it been known how long these plans had been incubating. From the moment she first set foot in the house, not quite one year ago, she had mentally tabulated certain changes she would like to make at Timberley. But she was not long discovering that living among the Tomlinsons as a daughter-in-law was quite another thing to living among them as a boarder. The winter before, she had found them completely charming. They were quite as charming now, but she had never been so aware of the formidable unity until she became one of the family. She began to feel that she had married not a man, but a tribal community in which married daughters, son-in-laws, and grandchildren had an equal vote with herself. She never had a moment alone with Richard except at bedtime. Of all the family, she preferred young Will because he was silent and sullen and usually took himself off after supper, either to his own room or into town to see some girl. He had no steady sweetheart, and his trips into Woodridge were matters of anxiety to his mother. After talking to him subtly once or twice, Judith decided that there was basis for Miss Anne's fears. The lad was lonely and in fair danger to get into bad company. He should have had a nice girl whom he could eventually marry. She took this knowledge away for future reference and dismissed young Will from her immediate calculations. She wished she could dismiss the rest of the family as easily. She had, by Thanksgiving, done nothing toward furthering her plans for making Timberley the center of a charming little group of intellectual society and gradually shedding the burden of constantly entertaining relatives and family friends. Richard's education and talents fitted him for leadership in such a society. All he had ever lacked had been a charming, cultured wife for hostess. Early in November, she proposed to Richard that they give a small party, just a few congenial spirits interested in discussing something besides neighborhood affairs. He grasped her idea immediately and was enthusiastic. They began to discuss the chosen few and struck a snag. He insisted that any such gathering at Timberley should include Doc Baird. She had difficulty in making him understand that the local blacksmith was not her idea of gentility. She decided to postpone the whole thing until after the holidays and concentrate on small innovations. These could be lumped under two heads, domestic and religious. Under the first came house furnishings and service at meals. Under the second, family worship. Her idea on this point was iconoclastic. The family altar had no place in the picture she was creating of modern life in a post-war Timberley. But she was too wise to suggest this to Richard just yet. She began with lesser changes. 
You know, dear, I think we should get rid of that old clock. They had been married six weeks and still occupied the bird's-eye maple room. Richard had hinted more than once that it was time they moved downstairs and let Thorne have the smaller chamber. Judith had dealt with this problem by having Jesse Moffat install a heating stove in the room, making it so cozy that Richard had been wooed to its warmth and luxury, and finally agreed that the downstairs room be kept for guest chamber. He lay now in bed, drowsily comfortable, watching the movement of Judith's bare arms as she brushed her hair for the night. She kept the room at a temperature that made a wrapper unnecessary. Bedtime, she had discovered was the ideal time for securing his endorsement of controversial issues. Did you hear what I said, Richard? She was watching him in the mirror. He murmured, Um-hmm. His eyes on her breasts as they rose and fell with each upward movement of the arm holding the brush. Well, what do you think? I think, he smiled, that it's fun being married to a hussy. Richard! She laid down the brush and reached for a night robe. I was talking about the clock downstairs. What about it? It doesn't run. Naturally. He yawned. It has no mainspring. And a new one can't be got, I understand. I'm afraid not. It's a very old clock, made in Switzerland. I don't believe parts for it can be bought in this country. Then let's get rid of it. He opened his eyes wide as though he had been asked to shoot one of the family. Get rid of Grandfather Tomlinson's clock? Why, it's over 40 years old. Father brought it all the way out here from Virginia. But it doesn't keep time. A timepiece that doesn't run and can't be fixed is as useless as a chronic invalid who won't die. The words had scarcely left her lips before she wondered, in consternation, what had induced her to make such a remark. He carefully avoided her eyes in the mirror but he answered casually enough. We'll see if it's possible to get a new spring. Mother said the clock had a beautiful tone. I'm sure she'd be glad to hear it striking again. Judith did not want the clock repaired. She wanted it removed. It was the gloomiest piece of furniture she had ever seen. But when the jeweler in Woodridge reported that only a Swiss clock mender could repair the clock, the family voted unanimously that the defunct timepiece should remain where it was. That was when she learned about the corporate unity of the Tomlinsons. She was more successful with her mother-in-law. Miss Anne, dear, do you mind if we serve the soup first? And then remove the plates before bringing in the meat and vegetables? Let's not put the pie on the table until we have finished with the rest of the meal. It's really no more trouble, and it makes more room, than putting everything on at once. Anne Tomlinson had not made up her mind what she thought of this new daughter-in-law and her advanced ideas. She did not consider that it mattered what she thought. She had advanced ideas herself regarding the limitations of parenthood. Richard was no longer the inexperienced lad for whom a bride had been selected willy-nilly. He was the mature man who had made his own choice. He must be allowed to manage this second marriage his own way. She held her tongue and refrained from saying one word against it when there was still time. Now that the time was past, her only interest was in cooperation. She had discerned that small things were important to Judith. A pleased wife made a happy husband. Richard's mother could help at least that much. 
It takes more time, Judith, to serve the meal the way you suggest. The men are always in a hurry at noon. How would you like to try it out at the evening meal? Judith was elated with her easy victory until she thought it over later, and then she was not sure whether she or her mother-in-law had scored. But the more formal service of the evening meal was installed, with Millie grumbling audibly at the extra steps entailed until it was discovered that the table was cleared, or nearly so by the time the meal was over and the business of dishwashing really expedited. The Tomlinson daughters on their first visit were charmed with the arrangement, and Kate announced that she was going to try it in the Turner household. The Tomlinson males, with the exception of Richard, were bored with the whole procedure. Richard declared that he liked it. It was that way in everything. During the first few weeks of their marriage, he approved every suggestion Judith made. Many were so impracticable as to impede seriously the work of the busy farm household, but Richard merely advised getting more help if it were needed. Sometimes his brother Will looked at him in exasperation and once scornfully asked if he were losing his wits. Richard's infatuation seemed complete. But Judith could have told her brother-in-law that actually her influence over her husband went no deeper than the play of sunlight on the face of a cliff. He agreed with her when it was a matter which concerned him little, such as the laying of a supper table. On a question which touched him personally, he was impervious as granite. This was brought home to her very soon after their marriage. They attended a lecture in Woodridge one evening. It was their first appearance in public since their wedding, and after the speaking they held quite a little reception among their friends. The talk turned on the wedding and the joke that had been played on the overnight guests. Richard was asked if he had ever discovered the identity of the mischief maker, and he had answered promptly that he had. His two cousins from Bridgeport had been the culprits. On the way home in the Phaeton, Judith said to him, You really shouldn't have told a falsehood, darling. About our wedding chivalry? I told no falsehood. Of course, dear. I realize you were trying to protect Thorn. She felt him stiffen at her side. He said, The Carey boys played the prank, and when they saw how people's clothes were ruined, they were ashamed to own up to it. Did they confess their guilt to you? They did. I saw them in town the other day and frankly charged them with the mischief. After a moment's silence, Judith said, I don't believe it was the Carey boys. You mean you think I'm lying? No, I mean I don't believe it could have been an adult. Everyone agreed that only a child or small animal could have crawled to the tops of those trees. An animal is out of the question, so it must have been a child. Your boys are much too young. There was only one other child in the house, he said. A ladder and a fishing pole were used to bring the clothes down from the trees. The same implements could have been used to put them up there. And who, murmured Judith, is more adept at using theatrical props than Thorn? He gave his attention to the horse, who had fallen into a jog. Have you ever questioned Thorn about this? asked Judith. No. His voice was the voice of a stranger. Then how do you know whether it was her work or not? Because I'm satisfied it was the work of the Carey boys. But still, Judith seemed unable to let the matter drop. You must remember, Richard, that Thorne went to bed that night very angry at me. This was the first time Judith had alluded to the incident. 
and she now proceeded to eat humble pie in cathartic doses. She pleaded nerves, headache, all the time-worn feminine alibis for bad temper, concluding meekly, I take the whole blame. Thorne was perfectly justified in feeling a desire to get even with me for sending her to bed. I agree with you, said Richard, much too promptly. But because she was justified, it does not follow that she was capable of harboring a feeling of petty revenge. That prank was horseplay of a very low order, a performance of which Thorne would have been incapable. But she's just a child, Richard, with a child's love of mischief. You're making the thing entirely too serious. It's you who are making the thing serious, Judith. Even when I tell you that Bob Carey admitted to me that he and his brother planned it in advance, you seem inclined to doubt my word. Judith said suddenly, Will you let me do one thing, Richard? Will you let me tell Thorne what you have just told me and watch her reaction? I intend to tell the whole family. You may watch the reaction of anyone you choose. He made the disclosure the next morning at breakfast. It was greeted with mingled amusement and indignation. Miss Anne said she had suspected the Bridgeport cousins from the first. Will said he had just felt all along it was the work of more than one person. Jesse Moffat was relieved to learn it wasn't witches. Thorne was frankly overjoyed at this proof of her innocence. I was afraid people would think I had done it. It was so much like my magic You tricks. couldn't have done it, Cricket, with all your cleverness, said Richard. Not unless you were twins. Judith did not join in the laughter that greeted her husband's Sally. She felt as though she had lost the first squirmish in a battle which had barely begun. Yet she was very happy those first months of her marriage. He was all that she had anticipated. If he was a little more than she had bargained for, that was only an added stimulus. He was ardent, yet aloof. He delighted at the same time provoked her. Sometimes she wondered if she ever would know what went on inside his mind. He was a passionate lover, but strangely absent-minded. She could not recall that he had ever told her that he loved her. But he was the man she had desired above all others, and the satisfaction of having him for a husband was well worth all it had cost her. She had been obliged to perform a number of unpleasant chores in order to bring the present felicity to pass. She regretted nothing, but she did think it rather too bad that she had to be reminded of Abigail at every turn. For instance, there was an album on the table in the front room filled with pictures of Abigail and Abigail's relatives. Judith saw no reason why that album couldn't be put away with the dead woman's other things instead of being left out where she must look at it. She had a queer compulsion which moved her every time she was near the album. To open it and look at Abigail's picture, it was most unpleasant. She took the matter up with Richard in a roundabout way. There don't seem to be any Tomlinsons in the album, he answered. Not in that one. That's the Hughes family album. Abigail had it before we were married. Don't you think, dear? I mean, really. It's not good taste to keep family pictures in the front room, is it? I don't know. He glanced at the fireplace above which hung portraits of his Tomlinson grandparents. Most people around here keep family photographs, if they're fortunate enough to have any, where they can be seen. But these are photographs of strangers. They are my children's maternal grandparents, uncles, aunts, and cousins. 
said Richard quietly. And the only likenesses we have of their mother. Oh, I didn't mean... Judith blushed at her own faux pas. Of course the pictures will be priceless to Ricky and Raji when they're older. That's the reason they should be put somewhere for safekeeping. Where would you suggest? He seemed amiable. Maybe we'd better take them upstairs to our room. Judith repressed a slight shudder. I don't think they should be kept out at all. They should be preserved like the treasured heirlooms they are. Didn't? Finding it impossible to speak Abigail's name, she was at a loss what to call her. Didn't the boy's mother have a chest in her room in which she kept her most cherished belongings? Yes. Then why not put the album of photographs in there? Judith looked up from her work to find him regarding her with a curious smile. All right. If it bothers you having them around. She flushed. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't matter to me one way or another. I merely... I think it does. He interrupted, still smiling. I think you find it unpleasant to open the album and see Abigail staring back at you. Of course, you don't have to open it every time you pass the table. We'll say no more about it, Richard. She bent over her fancy work with flaming cheeks. Oh, come now. I was only teasing. It's nothing to be ashamed of, Judith. I believe second wives are supposed to feel that way about things belonging to the first. And I think I'm supposed to feel flattered. She hated the whole conversation. She resented the mischievous twinkle which usually she adored. She loathed being reminded that she was a second wife. Please, Richard, don't say any more. But he picked up the album and left the room. When he returned, he tossed a small key into her lap. The album is now in the chest, along with her quilts and silver. The chest is locked, and there is the key. Keep it yourself, muttered Judith, and tossed it back to him. He caught it, laughing, took a bunch of keys from his pocket, and slipped it on the ring. Abigail was a great one to hoard silver. He went on. Would you believe it? Her purse was filled with quarters and dimes, beside four silver dollars and a fifty-cent piece. What did you do with them? Asked Judith idly. Oh, I put them back for the boys. They're quite a rarity these days. She must have had them before we were married because this house hasn't seen any silver since before the war. As he put his key ring back in his pocket, he drew forth a roll of paper money, $2 bills, $1 bills, and small currency as low as 10 cents in value. Shin plasters. He chuckled. How Abigail detested shin plasters and brass and wooden tokens for nickels and pennies. Is it absolutely necessary that we discuss Abigail? Asked Judith sharply. He glanced at her in mild astonishment. Why, no, I wasn't aware that I was discussing her. I was talking about post-war currency. He returned the money to his pocket, but he continued to look curiously at his wife. You know, Judith, I believe you're afraid of Abigail. Her face went so white that he had not been intent on his own thought. He might have been alarmed. I think you're afraid I have tender memories. Well, you needn't be. I never loved Abigail. She wouldn't let me. Relief made Judith suddenly bold. She asked the question she had never dared ask before. Do you love me, Richard? His answer was appallingly frank. I don't know. She wished, sickingly, that she had remained in ignorance. Don't know. She spoke lightly. Surely you know how you feel. I feel slightly drunk most of the time. He smiled. And so far... I have no desire to sober up. He put his hands on the arms of her chair, and she raised her face to his. 
His mouth on hers was a lover's mouth, and with that she had to be content. She watched him that night with the children, the fireside reading, which had been such a delightful feature of the previous winter, had been replaced by home tutoring and schoolwork. Judith herself, to her own chagrin, had brought this change to pass. I don't think, dear, that Thorne should be permitted to sit with us in the evenings until she has prepared her lessons for the next day. It was during one of their bedtime chats following an evening when Thorne had embarrassed the reading circle by asking for a definition of the word platonic. She should be studying her school books, said Judith, instead of listening to you read aloud. I didn't know she had to study at home. Richard looked concerned. Judith pursued her advantage a little too far. Arithmetic is difficult for her, I know. I taught her last year. I had to stretch a point to give her a passing grade. If she doesn't study at home this winter, she'll never get through partial payments. You wouldn't like to see her fail, would you? Richard was alarmed. He questioned Thorne, who frankly admitted that partial payments were too much for her. Mr. Carpenter gave such long assignments that only the smartest boys in class could cope with them. She had given up trying to keep abreast of the others. Richard promptly announced that the evening reading would be postponed until Thorne's problems were disposed of. That's unfair to the other children, Judith pointed out. Ricky and Raji have to go to bed early. Let Thorne take her work into the dining room. There's a fire in there. She can study as late as need be, and no one will disturb her. But Richard had a better idea. I'll help her with the problems. Then we'll get through in time for all of us to enjoy the reading together. They worked every evening after that, Richard and Thorne at the dining room table. The little boys not to be left out of anything brought primers and slates and joined the class in home instruction. And because Richard had that rare quality of inciting general interest in whatever he was doing, the lessons in the dining room soon became the focus of family attention. They usually ended in a hilarious romp about the time Jesse Moffat appeared with the bedtime basket of apples. On the evening in question, Thorne had been particularly cloudy on the subject of decimals. Stupid, Judith would have called her, but Richard's patience seemed inexhaustible. Over and over he explained, but every time the troublesome point came up in the wrong place. Thorne's face grew pale with weariness and strain, and finally she burst into tears. Oh, Richard, I can't learn arithmetic. You're wasting your time. Let me stay home from school and help Millie. If there was one thing calculated to arouse him, it was the mere suggestion of Thorne occupying the position of a servant. Cricket, how can you say such a thing? You don't want to quit school like that silly Nancy Turner. What's come over you tonight? She could have told him that Judith's critical presence in the room was no stabilizer, but she answered nothing, only sat silent while her tears sponged the errors from the slate. Richard put his arm around her comfortingly. You're tired, dear. You should be in bed. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll let the lessons go tonight, and tomorrow morning you and I will get up an hour early and tackle them while you're fresh. How's that? Oh, for goodness sakes, Richard. Stop babying her. Judith's annoyance burst from her at last. Thorne slipped quickly from under his arm and went upstairs. 
In the morning, she arose before daylight and went doggedly at her books again. But Richard did not join her. Judith saw to it that he overslept. He was full of apologies at breakfast. Thorne did not reproach him. She had surprisingly got through the bothersome problem by her own effort, and as she walked to school that morning with Ricky and Rogie, she took herself sternly to task. Where had she got the idea that she had a right to be happy all her life? She had had last summer, hadn't she? That was more than some people ever had. Who you talking to, Thorne? asked Ricky. Rogie said, You're not mad at me, are you? She laughed at their startled young faces and offered to race them to the horse steps. Hey everyone, it's Valerie here. I'm the director and narrator of this mystery book by Margaret Eckhart. Have you guessed the title yet? I wanted to give a shout out to all of the cast because some of them played multiple characters. Adam Abrams, he's another Canadian uh, being represented in this book. And he plays old Judge Shane, the twins from Bridgeport, the gatekeeper in episode two, as well as Jimmy Turner. Angel Black, she she has just been amazing. She's filled in all kinds of blanks throughout this book of casts who have one-liners. Here's a list of hers. Bishop's Widow, Martha Shook, Ellie Barkley, Jane Mitchell, Jenny Barkley, Mrs. Pruitt, and Nancy Turner. Ava Eames, she's another audiobook narrator that I've gotten to know over the last few years, and she plays Cousin Ludie. Carolyn Sen plays Miss Anne Tomlinson, who's probably my most favorite character in the book. Thanks, Carol. David Boisvert is my cousin, and he's down in the Nashville, Tennessee area. He started out helping me support the book by playing some of the background music, the piano. He plays a miscellaneous male at the end of the show. He does all of my piano backgrounds except a few. And he also plays the infamous Lucius Goff with his hat tilted just so. Garrett Odell, he plays Will Tomlinson, Richard's brother, the Sentinel editor, and Mr. Fairchild. Jack Hewson, he comes out of Australia and he supports us with Mitch Rucker, Mr. Weatherspoon, and the Pennsylvania Man. Jack Reisider hosts a podcast called Dark Net Diaries which I got to listening to through my husband. Jack plays the voice of Otis Hughes. James Seabrook. He comes out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and he plays the voice of Dr. Caxton. Now, James, he also runs a recording studio called Two Bodies of Water. So check him out. Jason Schnell is the next on our list, and he plays... A couple of different roles in this production. He's also a family member as well. So thanks, Jason, for filling in. 
He reads the Bible readings, and he also plays the role of the drummer salesman. Next up, we have my husband, Jeff Moss. He plays the restaurant manager, and he's also the wonderful voice that introduces all the titles. Jen Davis, she plays two characters, Kate Turner and the miscellaneous female at the end of the story. Joseph Morani Jr., he plays Henry Shook, the neighbor. Kyle Marshall, he's also a local Calgarian. He plays Pete McGraw and Alec Mitchell. Kylie Morgan, one of the stars of this book, she plays Judith Amory. And I'd like to thank Kylie for just hanging in there and really committing to the story over the last couple of years. Next up, we have London Moss. She plays Thorn, or AKA Cricket. She's also my daughter. Matt Sen, who's Carol's husband, he plays the voice of Doc Baird, Richard's dear friend. Next up, we have Peggy Davis, who's Jen's mom, and she plays the voice of Millie. And I just also want to thank Peggy because she was still recording, even though she was moving from one place to another during this production. And then we have Rafe Telsch. And Rafe, thank you very much for all the effort you put into this. Man, some of your performances gave me chills. And just hanging in there as our main character, Richard Tomlinson. And then we have Rain Cruz. Now, Rain is Jen Davis's roommate, or was at the time. And Rain actually does wrestling announcing. She plays the role of Abigail Tomlinson. Next up, we have Rodla Schultz, who's also a local Calgarian. He played the role of John Barkley, Richard's dear friend, and the pastor, Brother Jameson. And then we have Sam Sprenger, who started out with just a couple of lines as the miscellaneous man at the school meeting. But then he moved into Jesse Moffat's role. And boy, did he ever do a great job. Um, the last but not least, we have Zane Telsch, who's Rafe's son. He plays the role of Ricky and Raji. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all the cast and all the characters they played. Thank you, everyone, for such a great performance, commitment to this amazing project. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. For a breathless moment, there was not a sound. Then there came a surprised gasp from little Raji. Oh, that's one of Mama's silver. But she had caused every eye to turn suspiciously on Thorn. Why not put a direct question to everyone? She suggested to her husband. By her own admission is the only person who could have stolen your key, Richard. And Thorn, by her own admission, did not steal my key, Judith. So that's the final word upon the subject. 